Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. So just once again, keep repeating, but it's, it's, it bears repeating, we're gospel-centered of the church. And as Femi has said, uh, we can be gospel-proclaiming, we can be gospel-affirming, and all those things are right and good. But to be gospel-centered is to have at the core, the nerve center, the heartbeat of everything that you do, to be informed by the gospel of Christ. Not to be informed by just the commandments, but to be informed by the gospel. Not saying the commandments don't matter, they do, but the commandments actually get their power when you think of the gospel. And as when you said, to be in an urban setting like Lagos, it creates, you know, we're all urban animals, if you like. The way we think about our time, okay, well, maybe Lagos is a bit different than most, most cities in the world, right? Most, most cities like Lagos, everyone, everyone is very, very careful about time. Somehow, we've not gotten rid of that. But in terms of just innovation, in terms of how you know quick and the ambitions that we have were shaped by the city. And the challenges that the city also gives are very, very different from challenges that you have in more in less urban environments. And so what does the gospel have to say to people in the arts? What does the gospel have to say to architects? What does the gospel have to say to housewives? What does the gospel have to say to educators? What does the gospel have to say to investment bankers? What does the gospel have to say to people who are in relationships and the ways the city actually shapes these things? Does the gospel actually speak to that? And so it's about forming a community of people through the gospel and seeing how we're both shaped by the gospel and how the gospel is shaped by where we live as well. And so that's what we're doing. And these September to uh, December are what we call pre-launch services. So we've not officially launched as a church. We've been doing a lot of visual casting and trying to see what we would like to be. We did that journey to all and now from September to December, we're trying to then start as a church, but also feeding back, trying to see what our best practices are and what have you. And also, again, going through some of the things that we've been doing. So this month, for instance, being a gospel-centered church, we've done we've done three, well, most uh, our sermons have been, the three, last three sermons have been on the gospel, and today we'll be final one. Next we air month is all going to be dedicated to the church, because the gospel-centered church. And then in November, we'll be looking at some of the things that we have to face in an urban setting. All right? So let's move. Um, we live in a very brutal world, if you've not noticed. You just need to put on the news. What's here then? It's something in Syria. It's something in Iraq. It's another white person. There, a white police officer shooting someone in the U.S. It's rising inequality. It's all manner of things that we see. It's a very, very brutal world. Disaster for so many people, and even some of us here. Now... One of the things you have to ask, especially in the, in the times of deepest suffering, how do people live? How do we make sense of it? I'm reminded of a guy called Viktor Frankl. I don't know if that means anything to any of us here, but Viktor Frankl was a guy that was in the concentration camps during uh, World War II um, under the, um, uh, the Nazis. And if we know anything about the concentration camps, it was one of, some people said, the closest thing to hell here on earth. And now he eventually became an author, he survived it, became an author, psychoanalyst, but he wrote a very, very important book that a lot of people have read, and very, very significant, one of the most important books of the 20th century. It's called Man's Search for Meaning. Now I want to read you some excerpts from that book to 
to drive a certain point, all right? So let me start with a bit of the preface, someone uh, that prefaced the book. He says, as a long-time prisoner in a bestial concentration camp, he, that's Victor Frankl, found himself stripped to naked existence. His father, mother, brother, and his wife died in camps or were sent to gas ovens so that, except of his sister, his entire family perished in these camps. How could he, every possession lost, everybody destroyed, suffering from hunger, cold, and brutality, early expecting extermination? How could he find life worth preserving? Now, this is going to be a bit lengthy, so forgive me. Now, one of the ways he found the strength to stay alive and not lose hope was to think of his wife. Franco clearly saw that it was those who had nothing to live for that died quickest in the concentration camp. Now here is something, a part of, of Frankel in his own words. We stumbled, you know, this is when they were marched to um, they were forced, they were marched to forced labor uh, camp. Now we stumbled on in the darkness over big stones and through large puddles along the road running through the camp. The company guards kept shouting at us and dragging us with butts of their rifles. Anyone with very sore feet supported himself on his neighbor's arm. Hardly a word was spoken. The icy wind did not encourage talk. Hiding his hand behind his upturned collar, the man marching next to me whispered suddenly, If our wives could see us now, I do hope they are better off in the camps and in their camps and don't know what is happening to us. That brought thoughts of my own wife to mind. Occasionally I looked at the sky where the stars were fading and the pink light of the morning was beginning to spread behind a dark bank of clouds, but my mind clung to my wife's image, imagining it with the uncanny acuteness. I heard her answering me, saw her smile, her frank and encouraging look. Real or not, her look then was more luminous than the sun was, than the sun which was beginning to rise. In front of me, a man stumbled, and those following him fell on top of him. The guard rushed over and used his whip on them all. Thus, my thoughts were interrupted for a few minutes. But soon, my soul found its way back from the prisoner's existence to another world. And I resumed talk with my loved one. I asked her questions, she answered. She questioned me in return, and I answered. That's very, very... I don't know how it hits you. I mean, sore feet, ice cold winds, being forced to do things you didn't want to do, being separated from your family, not knowing whether you're going to see them, probably are going to die tomorrow, even the torture of that, and then forced, you know, under hard conditions to work, probably similar to what the children of Israel had in the time of Moses. And yet, how did he survive it? So the particular phrase there, I don't know if you caught it, it said, he found his way back from the prisoner's existence to another world. Now, in verse 24 to 25 of the the place that Taylor read for us, it showed us the power of hope to help sustain us through suffering, and probably even to bring about meaning through suffering. Now, the gospel itself that we've been looking at, you see, it says that we're saved into this hope. The gospel itself ends up in a hope. Now, if you remember, the first thing we looked at was the gospel story, right? We said there's a back story and a front story through which the gospel, the good news of Christ, emerges. That's why we have a very thick book. But the book is not just about laws. The book, the book is not just about problems. The book is actually a story of God working out the salvation plan. That is where the news of the gospel emerges. And after that, we looked at some of the benefits of this gospel. And we said, well, first of all, it's a status. It gives us a status that we are made righteous. That is now 
we stand before God unable to get desired things that we ask for because we are no longer under his wrath. At the same time, the gospel gives us a particular kind of life. It empowers us to live in a certain way. So we have the status. We are not justified by what we do. But now that we have the status, we live in a certain way. And the life that is in the spirit. But finally, the gospel holds out a hope for us. That is, we've not actually gotten everything that we want. There is a hope that it actually has for us. And so today I want us to consider that book in three different parts, all right, from this particular passage that we read. So we'll look at the groans of hope, we'll look at the fulfillment of hope, and we'll look at the certainty of hope. The groans of hope, the fulfillment of hope, and the certainty of hope. So let's take the first point. Now there are two ways to look at this world, all right? One way is the way that I often see on my Windows 10 um, screensaver. I don't know how many of us have, well, we're all forced to download Windows 10, what it took too much of a data, but look at those screensavers. I don't know if you see those pictures, absolutely fascinating pictures. Some of it you think is Photoshop, right? You don't believe that it's this world. No, that's, that's the thing. There's beauty in this world. There's love in this world. There's innovation in this world. There's art. There's music. There's a band there for real. You know, wonderful things that make our hearts sing. And yet there's another way to think about this world. The way that many of us are all too familiar with. It's daily grind. Fruitless work. Failed business. Wasted investment. Barrenness. Tsunamis. Earthquakes. Fatal accidents. Difficult marriages. Even failed marriages. Lack of direction and purpose. You know, I know a little bit about enough of us here to know that some of us most painfully have loved, have lost, have lost loved ones. You know, quite a lot of us here have single parents, and many of those parents were taken from us in our early years. The pain and the agony that we feel through many of these things, the Bible says, look, sometimes you cannot articulate it in words. The only way you are going to express it is through a growth. It's through I've been with some people who lost their husbands in, you know, probably like just two years after they got in mind. And at this point, they can't even cry again. All you just kept hearing is, mm-hmm. and Paul says that not only does humanity groan, but the subhuman creation also groans as well. That is, this same world that we see mountains and we see waterfalls is the same world that we see volcanic eruptions and floods. And the creation is also groaning, saying this is not how things are meant to be. Verse 18 calls it the present sufferings. And so we and the creation are groaning. And the funny thing is that Paul in verse 23 even tells us that Christians, believe it or not, also groan in this suffering. Now don't forget now what we were treating last week in verse 9 of this uh, chapter he said, if you don't have the spirit of Christ you, are, you don't belong to Christ. So in verse 23 when he said we also who have the first fruit of the spirit I get the first fruit later, but he still said we who have the spirit as well, we ourselves grow. So he's talking about Christians. Now that's perplexing, isn't it? Right? If we're Christians, God loves us. And this God is all very, very powerful. And in verse 22 he says that well, he gave us Christ. Shouldn't he give us all things? Why then does he allow suffering in this world? Well, some would answer and say, actually, the reason why we suffer as Christians is we don't have enough understanding or we don't have enough faith. 
Now, on the one hand, we can answer and say, well, but in verse 17, it does say that we suffer with Christ. And then you may answer back to me and say, well, actually, we can suffer through persecution, but we shouldn't suffer through sickness. We shouldn't suffer through uh, uh, failed marriages. The only reason why we do that is we don't know who we are. We are more than conquerors in Christ. So that Christians are only meant to suffer through persecution, the, pers- the suffering that comes because you proclaim Christ openly. But all these other sufferings is an anomaly. You shouldn't suffer. There's something wrong with you. Let me give you four responses to that, just from this passage, and I'm very quick with that. The Bible talks about Christ, who is God, coming into human, human, the human condition. He became, he came in likeness of sinful flesh, and He says, by doing that, He identified with us, so that He can help those who are also suffering. He is a high priest that can meet our suffering, um, uh, that can bear with the feeling of our infirmities. Why? Because He identified with us in all our suffering, not just the suffering that came because He was the Son of God. The second is that the Greek word that is used for suffering in this passage encompasses all forms of suffering. Third is that if you follow the close connection between the Christian suffering and the growth of creation, again, it cannot limit the suffering to one particular sphere of persecution. If, I, if you go down to verse uh, 35 to 37, something that we're very familiar with, the one that talks about the um, being more than conquerors, it's basically telling us, look, being more than conquerors is not because you get rid of suffering. Being more than conquerors is that you hold faith in spite of the suffering. In fact, it includes persecution and then mentions other things. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, hardship, or persecution? So persecution is different from hardship, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it's written, for your sake we uh, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors who give who loved us. So we conquer in spite of the suffering. So as Christians we grow, and it says also in this present age, verse 18. This present age is the age that we all live in, the valley of the shadow of death, where we face all these things. So all of creation grows, every human being grows, and even Christians are groaning. Now, but if God, and I need to pose this question to you, if God is all powerful, if God is all good, if God is all loving, how then do we make sense of suffering? Can he not see that 6,000 plus children have been murdered in Syria in the last four years? Can he not see how many of thousands of Christians have been killed, at least with the Christians, in, with, um, via Boko Haram in the last four years as well? How do we make sense of it? Well, I want us to think about groaning in two particular ways. Right? There are two types of groans. One is implicitly mentioned here in the text, and the other one is explicit. Now, but let's use this analogy. If you enter a hospital today, and you're walking down the ward, and you hear two types of groans, let's think of one. The first is a cancer patient. A cancer patient, they have um, terminal cancer, but they're in the middle stages of that terminal cancer. And then the other one is the groan of a woman in labor. The first one anticipates groans that are actually, and pains that are actually going to be made worse, isn't it? The person starts to feel this pain now, but unfortunately those pains are going to get worse. So in that particular condition, the groans that are there are in anticipation of worse groans, and it doesn't end well. The second one the groans that are there are in anticipation of deliverance and joy. She's going to be delivered of the baby, and then both the pain goes, right? 
And you know, the funny thing about this thing is that you women, uh, I have to say this, really. I've been in this situation twice, right? And everybody's always commiserating with the women. With the women, fine, you know, the baby comes out, the groom goes, and everybody is happy. But what about the men? <laughs> right? What about what we have to face with? That's why anytime somebody, uh, when we had our first son, I, I basically sent the text, is, you know, this normal text, babies, it's three pounds, blah, blah, mother and child are doing well. I said, no way. What, what do you mean by mother and child? Mother, child, and father are doing well for the world. But let's assume, guys, let's assume that their story is actually correct. All right? It's very, very painful. But this pain eventually ends up in... All right, before all the women leave this church. All right, it's very painful. Very painful. It's worse for you guys than it is for us. Fine. We can talk about it later. But... The pain eventually leads to joy. On the one hand, the pain was anticipatory of a greater pain. On the other hand, this pain is actually anticipatory of joy. And in internal circumstances, and applying to our context here, suffering in this particular world, in one sense, pictures eternal suffering away from God. We can't get away from it. And God is only gracious because he tells us about this eternal suffering. And he's saying, look, life apart from me now is already misery for you. What do you think is going to be outside of this world when you continue to reject me? That is the groaning of those who are in the flesh. The second groaning is the groaning of those who are in the spirit. This is what is pictured in verse 22 of creation's groan and the Christian's groan. In fact, he says, we who enjoy the first fruits of the Spirit. What's first fruits? First fruit is this uh, agricultural term, which basically says if you plant and you wait for the harvest, just from months before the harvest, some offshoots of what you're going to reach when the harvest start to show. You, you understand what I mean? Some of the fruits actually start to show in anticipation that we're going to get a full harvest. And this is telling us that we who have received of the Spirit now have received something or, or a foretaste of what we want to enjoy later on. In fact, many times the Bible says that the Holy Spirit given to us now is like a down payment. What you put down for your mortgage, eventually saying that you're going to actually fully pay. So we are experiencing some of the goodness of God, but in anticipation of what we want to get. And sometimes that anticipation is expressed in pain. Both for us and the creation. Now, you say then, but why does God actually do it? Why can't he just remove suffering now? Why do I have to go through all that to actually understand this? Another analogy we can think about is many of us who are training children now, right? We actually discipline our children. I hope someone discipline our children. If your child tells you no, you say, what are you talking to me? I say, go to your room now. I don't want to. Ah, you don't want to. All right, just wait for me. <laughs> now, why are we doing some of those things? Why are we telling them to go to the corner? Why are we telling them to kneel down, raise up their hands and close their hands? Why are they telling them to do jump, uh, frog jump? Because some of them people are looking at me. <laughs> well, if you are the kind of son I have, well, you know what's up. But the reason why we're doing this, why are we just doing this? We're giving them this. Do they understand the reason why? No. We understand the reason why. We don't want them to become spoiled. Because if they become spoiled, they become trans. They always live off us. They'll never be able to make life for themselves. They'll become a menace to the society. They probably will impregnate like four women outside. They become, they totally destroy themselves and the society. 
The pain that we are giving to them now, they don't have the capacity to understand. Now, how do you think that a God who is all loving, all powerful, and all loving, but is also all knowing, says that this pain that I'm offering to you now, stick with me. It will end up in joy. And so we find meaning in the character of God himself. It says here that Christian suffering ends up in glory. It says in verse 18, the sufferings of this present time cannot be compared to the glory that shall be revealed. And in verse 25 as well, we who have the first world spirit are groaning for the hope of glory that we don't have. This is why Paul says that we can wait patiently. So the groan of a Christian is a groan of hope. But you know one of the things about groaning, or one of the things about hope, is that for it to be truly effective in our lives, it needs two things. The first is that it needs to be clearly defined, the second needs to be true. So let me go to the second point now, the fulfillment of hope. I don't know how many of us have installed uh, version Bible app. Do we have that? Do you know what version Bible app? Most of us have installed version Bible app. It's one of the most popular uh, Bible apps around now. In fact, by 2015, I think it had about over 200 million installations. Now, some stats that are quite interesting and I like to follow is the most popular verses in particular countries for the last year. So, think of this. US, Canada, and UK, their most popular verses was Romans 12, verse 2, which we all know, right? Do not conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's an Anglo country. It's all about the mind. It's analytical, fine, rich. So, they want to actually talk about their mind. What about Latin America, Mexico, Colombia, and Brazil? Well, it's Joshua 1 9. It speaks about courage. Have I commanded you be strong? Have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And then there's Nigeria. <laughs> Take a while. <laughs> the most popular verse in Nigeria for 2015, I don't know why it's also the most popular in South Africa as well, is this. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you. <laughs> plans to prosper you and not to and, and, and you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope. And if it's not, we can laugh at it. But what does this tell us? We are a country and in fact a city that is desperately in need of hope. Searching for hope in all different places. Now the problem is, what hope do we need? The misapplication of this verse many times demands that we actually understand what is the hope that God has laid out for Christians. Now we are not without different options for hope in this world. Let me give you four examples, right? Four different philosophical or religious examples. So let's say you're a secular materialist. You don't believe in God, you don't believe in an outside world, and life after. All you believe in is the material. Now, all these four options I'm going to give you are going to tell you about hope with something to do with the body, the spirit, soul, and the world. Now, if you're a secular materialist, you basically believe that this creation was accidental. How did it happen? It just by accident, we don't know. You don't believe that human beings have souls. It's all about chemicals and um, signals in the, in the brain. Therefore, at the end of the world, everything is going to be destroyed, right? You came in accidentally, we're all just going to, everything just going to be destroyed. So there's no ultimate meaning for life. You make up small, small meanings. Do you have children? Yeah, live for your children, but don't think that that has any huge significance in the overall scheme of things. They may die. What about Eastern religions and New Ages, right? The body doesn't matter. The spirit and the soul are your true self. In fact, the body and this world 
it's like it's like a prison. Our true self is the one that is inside. And what is the end of the world, or what is the ultimate hope we want, is to break free from the cycle of this suffering. Whether you call it moksha, you call it nirvana, idea is that ultimate bliss is to get out of this body and enter into this spiritual neverland. What about Yoruba traditional religion? Well, forget all this nonsense about this thing. The most important thing is ancestors, right? We will leave this bodily existence. We will go to our room. Well, there are two types of our room. So you want to go to our room, feel free. You don't want to go to our room, feel free. Very good. But we go to our room, right? A spiritual existence, not bodily existence. And the greatest joy that we have is that we meet with our ancestors and we are waiting for our children to come as well. That is, that is the ultimate hope that it gives. And there's also a slight Christian, a view that I don't think is right, but it's a Christian view. It's Christian escapism. It basically says, well, the soul and the spirit is what God is renewing. The body is the flesh. The flesh is back. And therefore, what is the hope of a Christian is to exit, see you later, from this world that is actually going to be destroyed. Or raptured from this world. Let's escape. Let's get out. Now, all these are actually presented to you. Have, though most of them have a positive view of the soul and the spirit, but they have dire or maybe negligent at best views for the body and the current earth that we live in. But I think the Bible actually offers us something more, a lot more glorious and a lot more relevant to us. You see, when God created this world, it's not by accident that God created the heavens and the earth that we see now first and then placed human beings there. What was God implicitly saying? That human beings are created for this world, for material existence. And therefore, the hope of a Christian includes this world and the body as well, not just the soul. So, for example, in verses 14 to 17, it speaks about another gospel status we didn't actually talk about. We spoke about justification, but it speaks about adoption. That when we are with trust in Christ, we become sons of God, or sons and daughters of God, by adoption. But in verse 23, it says, our adoption is not yet full. Even though we have the status of adopted children of God, and we even have the spirit of adoption whereby we cry about Father, there's still an adoption that we're waiting for. And it will only be culminated in what? The redemption of our bodies. What does this mean? If you go to 1 Corinthians 15, it tells you, let me say some of the things. It says, it tells us about what wouldn't be around, and it says that the good things that we have will have even much more. So what will not be around? What are the things that we hate the most? We will not decay. It says we will be imperishable. We will not decay. The aging process that brings about, you know, now, look, I'm not too old, but I already have a bad back. Some of us here, you know, the gray hairs are actually coming out, and that's a sign of something, isn't it? Gray hair is only, is only going to get more, except they are like Jim Mobile that <laughs> polish your hair. But eventually, age starts to tell you something. Time is ticking. The sicknesses come. Now you start dieting. Now you start dreaming. Why? Because you're trying to fight the aging process. And the aging process always leads to one other place. It shows us our mortality, isn't it? It always ends in the grave. And here, the gospel hope says, no, as you are now, you will die. But actually, I'm going to give you a body that's both imperishable and immortal. You will not be able to die. And so it gets rid of all the sicknesses and all the diseases that we don't like, but also eventually gets rid of death. But what about this world? If it's the body, if we are human beings, and now we've been made imperishable and immortal, don't forget it's because we felt that actually God cursed this world. 
Therefore, if God liberates us, he's also going to liberate the world. And that's why it says that the whole of creation is in eager expectation for our own deliverance, because it knows that deliverance is connected to that. Guys, get this straight. We are not flying away somewhere. Fine, when Christians die, we go to heaven, we wait, but we are waiting the renewal of this world. Revelation 21 says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Jerusalem was coming down to earth, where we dwell with God forever. God is going to recreate this whole world. And you will be more the person that you are meant to be than you are now. In other words, you are not going to lose your individuality. You know, quite often when we see someone that we knew before, maybe in secondary school, full of life, vibrant and all this, and we see the person, maybe life beating the person down and all that, we say, oh, he's a shadow of himself, his true self. Sometimes it's even, the what we picture is even less, the what we picture is much more than he was before. We're saying he's a shadow of his true self. In other words, we're saying that there's something about his true self that he hasn't even reached out. God is saying that is what he's going to do for us. Therefore, in a recreated world, we would have recreated human beings who will never die, who will never decay. And when we have banished sin from this world, or when God has banished sin from this world, what do you think is going to happen to our relationships? It's a world full of natural beauty, no natural disasters, a world, a world full of temperate weather, no harsh conditions, no viruses, no bacteria. And let me tell you, look, if you think a forever is good now, oh my God, just with the new heavens and the new heavens. And as a, a bit of an aside, this hope of having a new body and having a new world is why a lot of a lot of what we call Christian ethics is based on. So, for instance, why do we say as Christians that it's wrong to actually cheapen your body and cheapen the body of another person and engage in sexual activity whilst you are not married? Well, in 1 Corinthians 6, 13 b 14, it basically says this: because God places so much value on the body. In that he's going to raise the body, don't actually mess up your body now. Why Christians also have a strong view against cremation. But it's also why Christians, without getting into the religious overtones of this thing, should be, we should be at the forefront of creation care. Don't just say, well, it's making money, so we just burn this place. God has made us stewards of this world. Yes, he's not going to create this world by us, the things that we do now. But we can show that we anticipate the world to come by caring for our bodies and this world that we live in now. I need to move on. If that is the, the, the new creation defined and the hope of Christians defined, there's one more burning question. Don't forget, it's hope. And one of the things that many people have done, and one of the most devastating things that happens to people is when you hope in something and you've actually found out that you are believing in a lie. The time for the hope comes, and you actually find out that it's devastating. You decide that, oh, this person that I've been dating for the last three years, eventually we are going to get married. I'm sure this is the kind of life we're going to live. And eventually you enter into the marriage and find out the person is a monster. There's nothing more devastating than hope that shot. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, how do we know this thing will be true? Now, Victor Frankl says something in this, in this uh, that I didn't mention. He says, I want to point. He says, it thought crossed my mind. I didn't even know if she was still alive. And I had no means of finding out. Because during all my prison life, there was no outgoing or incoming mail. But at that moment, it ceased to matter. There was no need to know. 
But for him, he said there was no need to know. In fact, it did not matter whether his beloved wife was alive or not. I think he's ultimately wrong. Because what we hope for and what we live our lives based on the things that we hope for, it matters if it's true or not. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, look, if Jesus Christ did rise from dead, if we put our hope in something that is actually false, we should actually get rid of Christianity. So we have to ask ourselves, how, how can we know whether this is true? And that's the final point, the certainty of hope. We've done the, we've done the uh, groans of hope, the groan of hope, the uh, fulfillment of hope, and now the certainty of hope. Now, if you look down to verse 30, there's something very striking there. Paul tells us the sequence, if you like, of how we get to this. Now, it's not an exhaustive sequence because he mentions other things, but there are five steps he basically said. And no way, I'm not going to get into the first two. I'm not going to get into arguments about them. But he says, God has people he predestined early for new death. And then those who he foreknew, he actually predestined. And those who he predestined, he actually called. And those who he called, he actually justified. Now we've done justification. You understand that, right? Put your faith in Christ, you're united with Christ, you trust in him. After that, we know that it's a new life. And then he says, but those he and those he justified, he will glorify. He also wants, but I don't understand that because what he's actually shown us is that Christians are not yet glorified. How can he speak about it in the past, something that is going to happen in the future? But the reason why he speaks about it that way is that he's almost so certain that the same way God justified is the same way God is going to glorify. He's saying it's a done deal. And to prove that point, he gives us two reasons. One is objective and the other one is subjective. Let's take the subjective first. The subjective has to do with the ministry of the Spirit. Now, if you notice in verse 27, uh, in verse 26, it says, in the same way, that in the same way hope sustains us, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. We have weaknesses. What is this weakness? The weakness is that we don't know the will of God. We try to pray, but we don't know the will of God. If we do a small exercise in verse 26 and 27, if you put the parallel there, you'll be able to see it. We need to look at it, it says, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. Or, um, yeah, you move on, it says, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes in verse 26. In verse 27, it says, because the Spirit also intercedes. For who? For God's people, that's us. In accordance with the will of God. That which we actually don't know what to pray for. And so not knowing what to pray for becomes a weakness of us. How many of us, look, I can't tell you, countless. If, we, if you ever want to open a church and you want to be successful, let me tell you, just do a series on fusions. Right? Do a series on marriage. All right? Do a series on marriage. Do a series on money. And do a series on finding the will of God. Because everybody wants to, I just, we talk so many people, I just wish I knew the will of God for my life. Or I'm following the will of God for my life. Guess what Paul is saying? We don't always know. No matter how much certainty people want to give, we don't always know. And therefore, we don't know how to pray all the time. And it says, in doing this, God actually sends His Spirit to actually help us to pray and intercede for us when we don't actually know what to pray for. Now, these are in tongues because it doesn't say that the Spirit prays through us. It says that the Spirit prays for us. And there's a parallel here. Jesus Christ came 
and identified with human suffering so that it could be a high priest that could be felt in the feeling of identity. There's something about speaking to people when you actually, or comforting people when you've actually gone through the same experience. Am I correct? Someone who's lost someone is better able to speak to somebody else who's lost someone recently. And Jesus is a God that is not alone. He came to this world to actually feel what we feel. So in verse 34, he says that, therefore, in its ascension, Jesus Christ is interceding for us because he can feel our infirmities. But after Jesus Christ came and was ascended, the Bible says that God and Jesus also sent the Spirit. Now the Spirit is there with us and is in our hearts. When Jesus was in our world, the Spirit is now in our heart. Our drones are nothing to be always articulate very well and know which one fits into the will of God or not. And the effective intercessory prayer of the Holy Spirit is basically to help us take what is in the will of God in our grounds, that which is superfluous, he gets rid of, takes the one that is according to the will of God and brings it before the Father. How marvelous is that? You don't always have to know the will of God. You have a helper that will help intercede for you. And that is the subjective reason. But subjectivism sometimes can actually lead us down the wrong road. If you say this is how I feel, you just have to take it. Can there not be an objective way we know that this hope is actually certain, like Hebrews 6 says? Well, we do. In verse 28, or verse 29, it says something that we can miss. It says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined. Predestined is saying a destination that God has actually ordained before time. He predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he may be the first, first among many brothers and sisters. Many times in the Bible, in the New Testament, Jesus Christ is called the firstborn, the firstborn of all creation. But you say, I don't know, Adam was created first. Jesus Christ came years, years, and thousands of years later. What is he saying? He's saying, no, no, no. Jesus Christ is the firstborn of the new creation. The first to rise from the dead. And therefore, if we bear his image, we can prove that he actually rose from the dead. Or rather, because he is actually risen from the dead, we know that we will bear his image. This is why Paul, in trying to prove that there will be a resurrection from the dead in 1 Corinthians 15, hinges it on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he says, if you say there's no resurrection of the dead, then you say that Christ is not risen. If you say Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. The best thing for you to do is to live a humanistic life. Let us eat, drink, and be merry for all to happen with them. In other words, look, and I'm telling you this as a Christian. If Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, you're a fraud and you shouldn't be here. And the best thing for you to do is basically try to get the best enjoyment out of this life. But if indeed he's risen from the dead, and amen he is, then you can look to the future in great certainty. All our suffering ends in hope, and this is how we make sense of it. We don't always know what to say, but we know that eventually all things work together for our good. The good is that we will be conformed to the image of Christ. It doesn't say that this particular suffering we understand what good is going to come out of it. And please, whenever we're counseling people, be very careful. If somebody loses a child, don't go and meet them and say, you know what, don't worry, it is well. It's not well for that person at that point. If someone loses the father that is so dear to them, you don't go and say, don't worry, this thing is going to turn into joy, you know, because you think when you do it for a night, joy comes in mind. That's cruel. 
The Bible is saying all things. It's not saying this particular thing, but everything, the sum total of everything, will eventually work together for good. And it tells us what the good is. The purpose of God. That we will be conformed to the image of Christ and will live with God in a holy, living, recreated world. That, if you're not a Christian here, is so good, isn't it? Why wouldn't you want that to be true? And we as Christians, Please stop finding your joy and your will in things that actually will perish. Does God want our good? Yes. Does that good always involve material things? Most likely not. Christians are poor, Christians are rich, Christians are middle class. That is not the certainty of our hope. Our hope is so much more. If you tie your hope to this particular world, it's because your God is very small. But if your God is very big, he doesn't just look at this world, he looks at the world all the time. Are you suffering now? Take heart. Because nothing shall separate us from the love of God. Heavenly Father, we just thank you. Not just for the things we've had now, but even for this whole series. For we've spoken about the story of the gospel. And we've seen how our lives fit in. It makes sense. The statement of our life makes sense when we take our own story and fix it in your larger story. We thank you for this love that has been so expressed to us that whilst we are yet ungodly, Christ died for us. And we thank you, God, that we don't have to work, we don't have to have a performance record to then unlock your blessing. But that in the other way, in the reverse, that you actually give us this status. And now we work for you. We thank you for the spirit that lives within us, that empowers us, that gives us and enables us to serve your body with the extraordinary gifts and all manner of gifts in love. And we thank you for the hope, the hope that will not make a shame. Because you've already given us the guarantee of the overflowing spirit in our hearts to love one another. But we look to be empowered by this hope, to work for justice, to keep ourselves pure, and also to relegate all the things the, 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 the things that this world offers that are actually very, very cheap. Help us to fix our eyes on you. Ask all this. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.